always wanted to do that. <laughs> well, my name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Haven't had a drink since July 20th, 1965. <laughs> and yet I feel like a newcomer. And I hope I always do. And as far as some of these guys and gals sitting at the table down here, I am a newcomer. Forty-eight years of sobriety. Whoa. I hope I live so long, one day at a time. And the one day, it's fantastic. We're not supposed to be sober one day. It defies all logic and all expertise for a person like me or any other alcoholic to be sober one day. It just doesn't work that way. I'm glad I'm here. I've been to the bathroom about 14 times. <laughs> my ex-wife used to ask me how many times I've been in the bathroom before I talked, and I'd tell her, and she'd say, oh, this is going to be a good talk. <laughs> Anything over seven is a hell of a good talk. <laughs> I was in the airport yesterday. Spent a lot of time in airports. Never planned to. Then I got sober. And this lady was sitting beside me, and she had a cute little boy. I guess he was about four years old. His name was Charlie. I knew that because I was listening in on a conversation. I couldn't help it. She was talking loud. And Charlie had on his green baseball bat hat turned backwards, you know, and he was running all over the airport. I thought he was going to get on a couple of planes there for a while. He'd start down the hallway and then have to go get him, you know. And she was talking about Charlie. You know what Charlie did the other day, she said? And the lady she was talking to said, no. I said, well, I got mad at him. He said, he ran to the telephone and picked it up and started dialing. And I said, what are you doing, Charlie? He said, I'm calling 911. I don't want you to hook me. <laughs> Children are smart. They really are. I get tickled at us. We uh, get into a process of spiritual growth, which to me is a matter not of growing up, but of growing down to become like a child again, to learn to think simply and wisely and naturally again, to know what our limits are again. And when I was a kid, I knew what those limits were. And every time I found myself beyond my limits, I reached out for help. And I hit bottom many times when I was a kid, if you know what I mean. I got way beyond my limits. I get tickled that we sit around meetings sometime and we analyze and intellectualize about our 12-step program, which is a simple program, except when I sit around some meetings and listen to me and others analyze it, and it gets real complicated. <clears throat> we talk a lot about the first three steps, as if they were philosophical or psychological propositions, and they're not. They're natural, common-sense procedure for a person like me who realizes he's beyond his limits. Now, when I was a child, I had a friend whose name was Ronnie. And Ronnie's the filthiest kid I ever met in my life. You can smell Ronnie coming two blocks away. He's a good baseball player, and we always put him on shortstop and tell him to play deep. And, and, and Ronnie was always picking his nose and rubbing the boogers in his hair and twisting his hair up, and it stood out all over his head. The, the elbows on his sweaters and shirts were permanently pressed from wiping his nose on them. 
liked Ronnie a lot, you know. He was, he was a good kid. His mom and dad were uh, street drunks, and he had no one to care for him and, and uh, clean him up and everything. I'd take him home with me every now and again, and Mother would meet us at the door. She'd take Ronnie's clothes and put them in one tub, and take Ronnie and put him in another, and clean them both up, and he'd stay with us for a week or ten days, and he loved my mother and daddy very much. And uh, it's easy to see why. And I could beat Ronnie at two things. I was always kind of afraid of Ronnie. I don't know what it was, the smell, I don't know what, but, but uh, I could beat him, I could outrun him, and that was good because I was scared of him. And I could beat him shooting marbles. You know, they were shooting marbles when he was a kid. I always had a pocket full of marbles, roly-polies and steelies and black beauties. They weren't pills either, they were marbles. <laughs> now, we shot marbles for keeps. You win the marble game, you get the marbles, right? <laughs> and I'd beat Ronnie, and he'd take the marbles. <laughs> now, I knew that wasn't right, but I knew there was nothing I could do about it because I was scared of Ronnie. And you know what I'd do? I'd turn to somebody bigger. I'd go get my dad. And I'd say, Dad, Ronnie got my marbles. And he'd say, Did you win, son? I'd say, Yes, sir. He'd say, Well, that's not right. Let's go get them. And I think Ronnie stole my marbles just to get to see my father. I believe that to my dying day, you know, because we'd go over there. He'd say, Ronnie, you get Tommy's marbles? He'd say, Yes, sir. Did you win? He'd say, No, sir. He'd say, Well, that's not right. Give them back. And he'd give them back. Just like that. And I often think of this when we're talking about the first three steps. They're so simple. <laughs> we lost our marbles. And, and, and we didn't have to be rocket scientists to understand that we couldn't get them back. So we went and got somebody bigger. And we put the whole problem in the bigger one's hands, and guess what? We got our marbles back. Now, any kid can understand that. We all did that. Automatic, man. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Help. And that's what I did when I came to this program, finally. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I'm totally beyond my limits. And I'll do what I did when I was a child. How many spiritual teachers have to tell us that we need to become like a little child again before that settles in? Little children are smart, you know. They know there's only one answer to the question, why? That's because. <laughs> and they're born with that knowledge. I mean, this smart's born, you know. It's, it's not so, we don't learn this kind of smart. This kind of smart is remembered when I'm in trouble. It's built in. It's that fundamental idea that the big book talks about. It's that great reality that's deep down inside every one of us that the big book talks about. And in times of trouble, man, I know all kinds of things. It's amazing, and it's natural, and it's practical, and that's why it's spiritual. <laughs> now, I've been sober a while. It amazes me. I hope I never cease to be amazed by it, because left to my own devices, I would have died long ago. But something's happened to me as a result of this program, which is the finest, most effective, life-changing program to ever come down the pike. Nothing touches it. It takes the losers of life and turns them into gurus <laughs> and spiritual giants. 
<laughs> or so they think. And then sobriety sets in. And they say, thank you. Thank you. Because left to my own devices, I'd be dead. Thank you who? The one who's limitless. That knows no limits. Thank you. I'm so glad that you don't have any. Because I do. I've been changed. I've been changed. I have been transformed by this program. From a person who was continually preoccupied with alcohol into a person who no longer sees drinking as an option. That's quite a transformation. It takes real power to do that kind of transformation. And in its second time for me, I'm still in that process of transformation because that's what it is. Recovery is a process. It's not an event. And I always liked events. I wanted magic when I got here. You know? I want to be fixed now so I can move on to whatever's next. When I'd been here one day, honey, I'd have been all up here with the old timers. Because I wanted 27 years in 27 damn seconds. And so did the rest of you, so don't laugh at me. <laughs> My mind's been changed, Bill. That's what's happened. I've had what some people call a metanoia or a paradigm shift or uh, all these big words, you know, and AA, we call it spiritual awakening. My mind's been changed. You know, it's been made new. That's not generally done. And yet here in this room, all these minds, to some degree, are being made new right now. We're waking up, you know, from that deep kind of spiritual sleep that locked me into that pattern of self-destruction for so many years, thinking I was going after life and running as hard as I could toward my own destruction. That's quite a change. And it happened because I came in contact with a bunch of what I call spiritual mongrels. <laughs> you know, who didn't try to take apart my head at all. They told me to sit down and shut up while they talked. And what did they do? They told me their stories. How can a story save anybody's life? Well, that's the way spiritual truth has been transmitted throughout all history, through storytelling. I think it's fantastic that a bunch of drunks would stumble upon that secret. They get together with one another and say, well, there's more than three or four of us now. What do we do at these meetings we're having? They said, uh, let's tell our stories. And that's what we do. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do. And it's simple, isn't it? Storytelling. Fairy tales, parables, myths, legends. How many other ways we have to do it? That's the way I learned the truth. That's the way I've always learned the truth. From the time my father told me fairy stories when I went to bed at night, there was always a point to those stories. Y'all remember those stories? There was always a point to those stories. And one of the points that always comes out of these kinds of stories, Bill, is that if your enemy is larger than you and you surrender to your enemy, your enemy will actually become your ally. 
And my alcoholism, in that sense, the greatest curse I ever had in my life, it's also the greatest blessing I ever had in my life. And I never understood stuff like that. Because I'm always trying to understand up here, and the intellectual mind cannot comprehend paradox. I thought y'all was nuts when I got here. Or taking pills or something. I mean, you were speaking the unknown tongue. You want to win? Surrender. I thought, bullshit. That wasn't the way I was raised, you know. I'm an American. Man, we don't surrender. We fight. <laughs> we lose a lot, too, but that's another talk. And you have to give it away if you're going to keep it. <laughs> My intellect went tilt. Just didn't understand that. <laughs> and I thought, you're nuts. And you're smiling all the time. I hadn't smiled in years. Unless you fell down and hurt yourself. You know? And then I laughed at you. Because just momentarily I could feel like I was somebody. And usually after I laughed at you, I'd fall down and hurt myself. It's a no-win situation. You're kissing on one another. That scared me. <laughs> Hugging each other. Say, ain't it great to be sober? And I thought, no. I'm nervous here. But I stayed. And I've got crazy just like the rest of you. And I talk that unknown tongue a lot. <laughs> you know, and I kiss people. And I hug people. You know, and sometimes I get overjoyed and go completely crazy. Been known to say amen in an AA meeting. <laughs> they, look, they look at you funny. <laughs> I understand Dr. Bob said that a few times. <clears throat> Quietly. <laughs> you know, so as not to run anybody away. And it's a miracle. Miracles take time. And I'm still in the process of mine. And God had a mess to work with when I got here. He had a mess. So I'm going to share a little of my story with you. When I say I'm an alcoholic, <clears throat> I mean I'm an idealist and a perfectionist, a hypersensitive romantic dreamer who was never satisfied with life, self, and others in my entire life. I always wanted more. I always wanted more. When I got what I wanted, it never was enough. I went for more. I'd say to myself, this is not it. What's next? Let me go try something else. And I was searching for something from the beginning of my life, just like everybody else in here. I was on that search, and I didn't know what I was looking for, and I didn't know how to find it. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of person who have always believed that if anything feels good, I should do it to excess. If it feels good, overdo it. That's been my philosophy of life. And I've had trouble with gambling and food and work and not working. I remember when I discovered sex felt good. I was by myself, just like the rest of you people.
all I was. In spite of dire warnings from my mother about a certain part of my anatomy rotting off and going blind, it felt so good I figured I'd keep on doing it till I got nearsighted anyway. That's one of my first successes in life, y'all. Later on, I found out it felt good with somebody, and all hell broke loose. Red-headed women with freckles, man, almost killed me. I walk into a room, and they were attracted to me like a magnet. There he is. Let's get him. Every sick one in the bunch. I love you. Women crazy. I was crazy, too. I used to think it was them. as me. Like I had a sign on me saying, come get me. I'm crazy. You make me feel good, I'll get addicted to you. I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of person that likes to do everything at once and do it all perfectly. <laughs> Have a stack of phone calls, you know, I got to answer, and a stack of letters I got to answer, and yeah, I start doing them all at the same time. And you get awful frustrated when you try to do that, you know that. A man or a woman was not so built that they could do two things like that at one time. You ever try to pee and comb your hair at the same time? You have, haven't you, Bill? Now, women may be able to pull that off, but, you know, when you're six foot three, you ain't going to do it. You're going to mess something up. And a psychiatrist would look at that and say, uh-huh. He has obsessive-compulsive disorder. <laughs> I call it the Tasmanian Devil Syndrome. Remember Tasmanian Devil on Bugs Bunny? Those suckers run around running through trees, man. Sawing down trees. Every once in a while he'd stop and go, go look for another tree. And that's me when I get that way. I'm bouncing off the walls. You know? Obsessive-compulsive disorder. Yo-yo. I was always either too happy or too sad. <laughs> I went to a, I snuck into an Al-Anon meeting not long ago. <laughs> Them people scared me. They were just talking about something I didn't know. They were talking in an unknown tongue. Now I know who I am. And they said, Tom, would you share with us? I said, on what? They said, moderation. <laughs> I said, I'd be glad to if you tell me what the hell it is. I don't know. I've never known what it was. Everything I do, it's, you know, I've got to overdo it. Because I just got two speeds as an alcoholic. Fast forward and stop. That's all I got. And everything I try to do is on forward. You know, I get in here, let's get it done. Let's get it over with. That's my pattern. And when it doesn't get done quick enough, I back off and leave. And I had a lot of trouble getting sober because of that. That sounds like a small thing. It's not. How many times have you seen the new alcoholic driven by pain and suffering into our fellowship? And he's on full speed, man. Help me, help me, help me. And all that remembrance of, of needing something bigger than himself is kicking in on him. You know, he's really sitting on bottom. And a week or ten days later, he backs off and goes out the door and does it again. You know, there's got to be some gears in between. And then guess why these old-timers tell us, you know? Easy does it. You're in first gear, you don't drink and go to meetings. Why? Because that's all you can do. 
You're in second gear, you read a little in that big book. If you can't read but one line, read one line and chew on it for a while. You don't say anything here because you really don't know anything. That's what I was told. You're trying to absorb and you're trying to learn because getting sober is a learning process. Just like learning arithmetic, man. You sign up for the course, you get your textbook, you go to classes with other people who are trying to learn arithmetic, you listen to your teachers, you do your homework, you hand in your assignments on time, and lo and behold, you learn arithmetic. You come in this fellowship, I'm going to tell you something, you paid your tuition. And you get your textbook, we got one, a lot of people forget that. We got a basic text in this fellowship. And you read that thing and you go to class with other people trying to learn sobriety because that's what you're trying to learn. And you listen to your teachers and you do your homework assignments and you just might learn sobriety. And I believe that. And I'm not talking about learning up here. I'm talking about learning in the heart and the spirit and the soul. That kind of learning that changes me, that makes my mind new. Character change. That's what this program's talking about. As far back in my life as I can remember, I was angry. And I didn't know what I was mad about. And I was scared, and I didn't know what I was afraid of, and I was guilty. But I really hadn't done anything wrong. And I felt like a nothing and a nobody most of my life. And I had a reason for it. I was the ugliest baby you ever saw. <laughs> People say, how do you know such a thing? I said, my mama told me. My own mother told me she'd never seen an ugly baby till I was born. She wouldn't take me out of the house for six weeks. I was on the face of the earth. She didn't want anybody to see me. And I told the psychiatrist about that once. He said, ooh, that must have been traumatic for you. And I said, no, sir, I've seen my baby pictures. Mama's right. I was ugly. As I grew up, things didn't get much better. I was one of them skinny little boys. The kind that you look at when he's standing sideways and his, you know, shoulder blades look like handlebars, like he can jump on and ride off any time. And I'd try to compensate by bringing my shoulders around and my chest would disappear. And my mother made me wear knickers. Didn't you fellas have to wear knickers? Somebody told me the other day, hey, Tom, knickers are coming back. I said, not on me, they ain't. Because my leg was this big and the knicker hole was that big and it's always falling down. Brown corduroy knickers. Y'all remember those things? And you swish every step you take and you pull up your knickers. And you pull up your knickers. And you go to the blackboard and you pull up them damn knickers. I was always pulling up Hated those things. Sure, my mama had something against me when she made me wear them. I had freckles all over my body. I like freckles as long as they're on other people. That's fine. I had freckles where people have never reported ever having freckles before. I had them there. I did. <laughs> and I always wanted to be a macho man. Big, tough guy. Mother had four big brothers. Cedric, Lloyd, Glenn, and Derwood. And Derwood they called Dud. Now, my Uncle Dud was a motorcycle cop back in the days when they wore riding breeches and leather spats up to their knees. You remember the time? Some of you kids just have to see old movies. And he had a harness across here with silver bullets in it and a pearl handle 38 said high on his hip, man. And he smelled like gunpowder and shaving lotion. And when he walked across the room, he squeaked all the way. 
And by God, that's macho. <laughs> Only time I wasn't scared when I was with my Uncle Dud on his motorcycle. Then I was okay. I was okay. He's 82 years old now, you know, and he is still the most macho man I ever met in my life. And he got real sick a couple of years ago, and I visited him in the hospital, and he was throwing blood clots and all that good stuff, and, and they were worried about him. I said, Dud, you can't die. I just walked in his room and said, you can't die. He looked at me and said, well, I said, I won't have a hero. And I sat down and told him how much he had meant to me. I'd told him before, but I told him again. And I wanted to be like these people. And on top of everything else that was wrong, my skinniness and the freckles and the knickers and being ugly, I had this great shock of snow white hair. And you know what my macho uncles call me? Pudding head. <laughs> now, now, last time I looked in the dictionary under macho names, pudding head was not there. There she goes, Lord. And I didn't like me. <laughs> I didn't measure up. I didn't like the way I looked. I didn't like the way I felt. I didn't like much about me at all. So I started pretending. I started pretending to be what you wanted me to be. Because I felt like if you liked me, it would be okay, since I didn't. And I played that game for a number of years, and on a given day now, I still play it. And so do most people. Whatever you want me to be, I'll be. Just let me be a part of you. I'm tired of being outside. I'm tired of being different. I want to fit in somewhere. I remember when I was a kid, I lived in a little community where everybody's kids kind of stayed at everybody else's house and ate at your neighbor's house. It was a thing that kind of disappeared in 1992 called community. Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the last and finest communities on the face of this earth. One of the last and finest on the face of this earth. This is a we group here. And that's what makes it work. A bunch of eyes that have no power get together and form a we that's got more power than any one of those eyes could possibly ever need. Put that in the intellect. It won't compute, man. He's powerless, he's powerless, she's powerless, she's powerless. People say, how'd you get sober? You must be a strong person. No, weak. <laughs> must have fought hard. No, surrendered. <laughs> must have had some terrific therapy. Did. Where you go? Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, what do you do? We share our stories. And they say, you got to be kidding. If this community ever folds, y'all, I'm dead. I revere those traditions for that reason. No rules, no regulation. Regulation, this is not an organization. There will be. The only thing that holds it together is we all have one primary purpose. That's what makes a community. One primary purpose. We're all here for the same reason. I used to sit up in a chinaberry tree outside the kitchen window when I was a kid. We call them cheney ball trees down in North Carolina. Got green balls on them that you throw at people. You know, I used to beat my sister to death with them damn things. <laughs> and I was always play acting when I was a kid anyway. I used to go to the movies on Saturday and 
It cost nine cents, as I recall, to go to a movie. Popcorn was a nickel a box. You got refills. I miss that, and my heroes were cowboys. And for nine cents, you could see a double feature western, a couple of good serials like Flash Gordon, you know, and Buck Rogers, the original Spaceman, and some good cartoons like Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig and Wiley Coyote, who's one of my role models. <laughs> and I loved the cowboys, Hop Along Cassidy and Rocky Lane. And remember Wild Bill Elliott? He's one of my favorite. Wild Bill had a jaw like a rock, man. And he wore these silver six-guns backwards. Y'all remember him? And you draw on old, old Bill, and he'd flip them six-guns around and shoot you down and have them back in the holster before you ever drew. And I love that. And I loved him. My hero, my real hero was Lash LaRue. You remember Lash LaRue? They called him Lash because he carried a bullwhip. You draw down on Lash, he whipped the gun out of your hand. Lash is about the coolest cowboy of all, you know. I liked old Lash, and I was watching a movie one day, and Lash was standing there on the, on the roof of the saloon, and he'd run all the bad guys out of town, and he popped his whip, and he whistled, and his horse came running by. And he popped his whip again, you know, and he leapt off into the saddle and rolled off in the sunset, popping that whip, and I sat in there crying. It moved me deeply to see Lash popping that whip and jumping on that horse. And, and, and I went home and got me a piece of rope. And I went up on the garage. And the kid next door had a pony named Beauty. I said, John Q, saddle up Beauty. And he did. I said, now walk her past the garage. And I remember this. And I popped my rope and whistled and leapt into the saddle. And when I hit it, you could have heard me scream in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You know, 30 minutes later, when I got my breath back, I started wondering about Lash LaRue. I still wonder if Lash had some kind of surgery or something. I didn't seem to hurt him. So wonder I lived to be a drunk. I look back on my childhood and all the things I did, because if my heroes did it, I was going to do it. I'd sit up in that teeny ball tree and I'd think sometimes, and I'd think, you know, I sure like my friends here. I got a good mama and a good daddy, but something's missing, and I don't know what it is. But it's like I got a hole in the middle of me, and it needs filling, and I don't know how to fill it. But I know if it ever fills up, I'm gonna be okay. I don't know if y'all wondered that way, but I expect you did, because a lot of people have. You know, it's like I was longing for something that I needed, but I didn't know what it was. Now, I read one time this guy named St. Augustine. I don't know if he was sitting in a chaney ball tree or not. But he said, you've made us for yourself, dear Lord, and our souls are restless till they rest in you. And Carl Jung, you know, had such a big deal to do with Roland's sobriety, which later went on to Shep, and later went on to Eddie, and later went on to Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob, and down the line to all of us. This wonderful, spirit-filled genius talked about a secret unrest that gnaws at the roots of our being. And Dr. William Silkworth described me and you as people who are restless, irritable, 
discontented. Something's missing. And we don't know what it is. But we know if we find it, everything will be okay. When I was 15, I was in a hotel room in Greensboro, North Carolina with my, my buddies, and we were up there for a high school music festival we had every year. We went up and practiced all week and put on a big concert. Best singers from all over the state. And my friends called a cab driver and gave him seven dollars and a half, and he came back after a while and he had a bottle of brown liquid in his hands, and, and the label on it said Cream of Kentucky. And I'll never forget that. And I said to my friend Egghead, that's funny. People say, why'd you call him Egghead? Was he smart? I said, no, his head looked like an egg. <laughs> Ask him what to do with it. He said, you drink a water glass of it fast as you can. And you drink a glass of water and you do it again. And I went in front of the bathroom mirror and I watched myself take my first drink. And I can picture that right now. And man, when it hit... It was like the nicest, warmest shower came down all around me that I'd ever felt in my life. And I felt warm all over, and everything smoothed out. And I said to myself, maybe not in these words, this is it. This is what I've been looking for in the Cheney Ball tree. I never felt this good in my life. I'm never going to be without this stuff again. See, <clears throat> my longing for that something more is what I would call spirituality. My seeming to find it with the effect of alcohol is the trick that alcohol plays on us alcoholics. It makes us believe that we're home when we're out on a detour somewhere. It makes us believe we found what we've always been looking for, you know, because of its effects, when in reality it's going to take us further and further and further away from it. It is cunning, says the book. It is powerful. Baffling. I thought it was the best stuff I'd ever found. My friends puked. I thought that was a waste. They passed out. When they were laid out on the floor in that hotel room, I called the cab driver. I gave him seven and a half, and I got me a pint of cream of Kentucky. I didn't know they made nothing else. I was 15. By the time I was 16 and 17, I was getting locked up regularly in jail. Never remember being locked up. But God, I remember coming to. Y'all remember coming to in jail? And he didn't know why he was there. And down south, you know, they served, served breakfast in jail. Breakfast was a real treat in the Wake County Jail in Raleigh, North Carolina. Some old molded bread, then toasted and got wet. A couple of weenies split down the middle, and that was supposed to be your sausage. Powdered eggs, and the grits. I'll never forget the grits in the Wake County Jail. One thing keeps me sober is I don't want any more of them grits. <laughs> they'd been on a plate so long and it got hard, you know, and you stick your fork in and the whole damn pile had come up. It's like you had to eat them like an ice cream cone. I don't want no more of them grits, Bill. Now, my daddy's on the board of deacons 55 years at Tabernacle Baptist Church. My daddy, by the way, is the finest man that ever walked the face of this earth. Gentlest, kindest, sweetest, best man I've ever known. I won't even argue that point with you. It's not arguable. My mother's a black belt Southern Baptist. She was hostess of that church. 
and their son getting his name on the social page every other day. A public drunk and DUI and resisting arrest and disorderly and all this other stuff. You know, I'm really making a name for myself. By the time I was 23, I'd had over a thousand stitches taken in my face alone as a result of drinking. But alcohol had hooked me. I had a body that wouldn't tolerate alcohol. It wouldn't handle it. Never would, never will. That part of me has not changed. It's probably worse than it was when I quit drinking. I'm allergic to alcohol. Always was, always will be. And by now I had this mental twist, this strange mental twist, you know, that they, they say we have in this program. And this strange idea was that someday, somehow, if I just handle it right, I'm going to get the same feeling I got in that hotel room, and I'm not going to hurt anymore. Someday, somehow, if I just handle it right, I'm going to be able to drink like everybody else. The obsession of the mind. And I was locked into that. And things were getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Every time things would get good, I'd mess them up. Did y'all have that problem? Every time things get good, that was bad. If there was a problem or a crisis, like being in the Wake County Jail, <clears throat> I'd work my way out of there. You know, later on when I was married, I'd, I'd sober up in between drunks. That's very altruistic, you know. Truth of it was that every once in a while I'd get so sick I couldn't get it up and couldn't get it down and couldn't live and couldn't die, so I'd quit for a while. And as soon as my dog was licking me on the face and my wife licking me on the other side of the face and my daughter not running from me, little monkey would jump on mom's shoulder and say, Hey, Tom, this time it'll be different. This time if you just handle it right, you're going to be able to drink. Go to it. And I followed that illusion. I listened to that lie until I actually believed it. I was lying to myself so effectively I actually believed my own lies. It was only after being in this program for a good while that I'd be sitting around talking to some of you folks and I'd, I'd, I'd relate a tale to you and I'd realize I never did that. Yeah, have y'all had that experience? I never did that. But it was one of my bar tales, you know, that I told about, you know, being on the front lines in World War II. Hell, I was a little boy when World War II was going on. I know none of y'all did that. The truth of it is, I started lying shortly after I started talking. And I got real good at it. Still am on a given day. Okay? This is an honest program, y'all. And Bill Wilson told us in the 12 and 12, which is another one of our books, you know, that, that not all of our character defects are instantly removed like the obsession to drink is. That on the others, we're going to have to be content with patient improvement. I don't know how patient I am, but I'm willing to improve. And some of these boogers still pop up. That's what they call them in Belmont, North Carolina. I was sitting in a meeting the other night and told them about the fourth step, and everybody's talking about character defects, and the big old guy down at the end of the table says, yeah, I call them boogers. That's the first time I ever heard character defects called boogers. I said, every time I come to this meeting, I learn something new. Alcohol wasn't my problem. Boogers were. And on a given day, if I have a problem in my life, guess what? It's one of them boogers. Serious. Now, I first came to you when I was 23 years old. I decided to grace you with my presence. 
I'd become an intellectual. I was reeking with religion. You get an intellectual who's reeking with religion in this program, and you find out what a real low-bottom drunk is, by God. It could be crazy. And I came into this outfit like I'd always done, because I'd excelled at everything I ever did, especially academically. You know, I came in this fellowship, and there's a man standing up front with a blue book in front of him. And on one side was a plaque with 12 steps, and the other side was a plaque with 12 traditions. And this great mind went to work. He says, all you got to do is memorize what's in that book, memorize what's on that plaque and that plaque, and they'll put you up front, and they'll listen to you. You ought to be president of Alcoholics Anonymous in six months. Any of the rest of you run for president of AA? Remember, it's an honest program, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> also, the guy was up front had control. I've always been into control. <clears throat> I didn't know it was the root of all my difficulties till I read pages 60 to 63 in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, where he talked about me being an actor wanting to run the whole show. That's right. I've always been into control. I like to be in the control seat. You know? And y'all laugh at me, it's funny, ha, ha, ha. Pull the bus of life into this room today, every person in here would go for the steering wheel. <laughs> I'm not excluding Al-Anons. <laughs> I mean, the book cleared that up for me, too. It said most people like to live by self-proportion. Not just us. I memorize, man. <laughs> I can quote large portions of the big book to you. The relief is I don't have to do that anymore. But if you're ever in a discussion meeting with me, don't misquote it. <laughs> and you know what those people did? They put me up front. And I delivered some of the windiest dissertations. I got smart in AA. I got letter smart and spirit foolish. For the next seven years, the longest I stayed dry was 89 days. And I had it up here. I could spit it out to you chapter and verse just like I could in the Baptist church when I was a kid. First Corinthians 13 chapter, I could recite that. Anything you want me to recite. I can recite the first part, how it works in chapter 5 to you. But I couldn't stay sober. It's like I'm this close to the switch. I know the switch is there. I've got the directions for getting there, and I can't reach it. And I know now I never would have as long as I was trying to reach it by myself. I had to have you. Sobriety demands a we. Demands it. And I didn't know that. Because I was different. I was so different, I almost died. Started meeting these hateful people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Old and ugly. Mean. And they called them old timers. Met this one fellow up in a group in Burlington, North Carolina, where they'll meet tonight. And this group's so traditional, everybody's got his own seat. You go to that group in Burlington tonight, and you look over on the left-hand side, there'll be a guy in a wheelchair. You lean back against the wall. His name is Barney. He'll be there. First row, second chair over will be Jim S. 
fourth row back, fourth seat's been empty for 23 years. That was Martha's seat. But you don't sit in the damn thing. You start to sit down there, they say, that's Martha's seat. Get up from there. And go around the room, oh, I'm talking traditional, man. And over on the right-hand side, second row, second chair from the wall, sat the meanest man that God ever put on the face of this earth. His name was Bill C., and I called him Grumpy, and I hated his guts. You know why? Man had x-ray vision. Could see right through me. Could see right through my words, right through this crazy mind, right to my guts, and I didn't like it. He'd wait for me at meetings. I know he was laying in wait for me. And I'd walk in the door, and he'd point his finger at me. Say, how you doing, boy? I didn't like it. I don't even be called boy. He wasn't supposed to know. <laughs> I'd give him the stock alcoholic answer. Fine. And then he'd back me in the corner with that finger, cussing. And he'd tell me how I was. And what scared me was he was right. And the man was ignorant. He talked in circles. Y'all have people talk in circles up here? Man, get on the hobby horse and go around with them. Boy, he'd say, you don't think your way into good living, you live your way into good thinking. And I'd say, you stupid old <laughs> But I never said it out loud because I was scared of him. And the one that always got me was, boy, how come you're always running around looking for God? He ain't lost. <laughs> See, I misread. <laughs> I mean, I've been reading some old Oxford group materials. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. That's where we came from. And, and you know that, that verse in that other book, which is non-conference approved, that says, Seek and you shall find. Well, this old Oxford group boy said, Look, it don't mean go out there hunting for God. It means seek inside yourself, which will keep and find those things that are blocking God and keeping you from finding you. I missed the whole thing. I had it all backwards. I had life backwards for a long time. Now, I had to impress Grumpy. When somebody doesn't like you and you're an alcoholic, you've got to make them like you somehow. I went out and saved a soul one day. I, I called it 12-step work. Ain't 12-step work when you're responsible for the results. But I went out and I found this old boy in the log cabin, been up there drunk for two months. He was turning blue. He's about to die. No indoor plumbing. You can imagine how filthy that place was. And I took him to the hospital, and I got a woman from down the road, and we, we shoveled out and swept out and hosed out that old cabin and got the boy back in the hospital, and he was going to live, you know, and the cabin was clean. And I called Grumpy so he could come see what wonders I had wrought. And in going through all that mess in that cabin, I had found a gallon of wine, and when he got there, me and the other guy were both drunk. <laughs> He was quite impressed by the whole thing. I always call Grumpy when it's too late, you know? <laughs> Seemed like with a test pattern to go out on TV and all the booze was gone. I'd say to myself, I think I need some help. So I called him one morning, about three o'clock in the morning. I was drunk. I was hurting, crying, bawling. And he said, don't ever call me drunk again. He said, matter of fact, don't you ever call me again. He said, if you want to get sober, you know where we meet. And don't call me to come get you. You can walk. 
And he said, frankly, I don't give a damn if you ever get sober. That hurt my feelings. I'm a very sensitive human being. I cussed him for everything in the world. And today I bless him. Today I bless him. I drank on. At one time I stayed dry 89 days down in North Carolina. We give out a red poker chip when you got 90 days. And I wanted one of those things so bad I've gone up to the chip box after meetings and stolen one. I was tired of being nobody. You know what I mean? I wanted to be somebody. And I took one of those chips and I taped it on the calendar on the 90th day. I hate to even admit this to you. No, I don't. And see, I skipped over all the steps except the ones that had to do with the higher power. That's all I needed. I didn't need y'all. I was totally, totally out of touch with the spiritual fact that the higher power sends his messages through other people. I was totally out of touch with that. I was going direct, man. Storm the gates of heaven. I particularly like step 11, you know, the prayer part. I've been praying for a long time. Not to bother about that. But I got into the meditation. That intrigued me. And I was watching TV, you know, and I saw, I learned who the best meditators in the world were. These guys wore orange bathrobes and shaved all the hair off the head. And sat down with their legs crossed up all funny on the ground and chanted, you know. Oh. Oh. That wasn't what impressed me. What impressed me was what they could do. See, I was always after results. The hell with the effort, I wanted to go for results. These guys could lay down on beds of nails. They could walk across fire and not burn their feet. They get hung up with hooks, you know, and it didn't even bother. I wanted to do that. I wanted y'all to point at me and say, you know, he can walk on warm water? You know? You know, he can lay down on bed and go, damn, look at Tom, he's walking on fire again. And I couldn't find an orange bathrobe anywhere. So I put on my old dirty blue drinking liquor cherry cloth bathrobe with the cigarette burns in it, and y'all probably had one like it. Stunk, man. And I'm too vain to shave the hair off my head. And by this time, I'd wrecked so many cars and broken my body so many times from driving drunk that I could get into lotus position, but I couldn't get out of it. <laughs> so i get my wife to help me, and I'd get down the lotus position and chant in my old filthy bathrobe. Now, don't tell me the higher power ain't got a sense of humor. He's got to have. I can see him up there now talking to Peter. I say, there he is again. Peter said, who? He said, put in head. <laughs> now they got his legs all crossed up again. He's hurting. Tell me, Peter, what does own mean anyway? Say, what old Puddin really wants is a thunderbolt, and I got plenty of them, you know. And I'd send him one, but he wouldn't like the color. <laughs> Eighty-five days. On the ninetieth day, I rested. It's funny now; it wasn't then. Humor plays a large part in my sobriety. I fully believe until I'm able to laugh at me heartily that I'm not taking me nearly seriously enough. 
boy, what a lesson I had to learn on that. I didn't want to laugh at me. I didn't want you laughing at me. I don't care. I don't care anymore. Feels good. You got to know I hit bottom. And you got to know that when I hit bottom, the wisdom that had been locked inside of me was remembered. And I went for help. But I got to tell you about it. I don't know about July 20th, 1965 in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I woke up and I realized I couldn't drink. I did. I'd known that for a long time. Used it as an excuse. People say, you know what you did last night? Well, I just can't drink. I'm talking about knew that I couldn't drink. And I knew that I couldn't quit. And it was more than a head thought. And I knew I was going to die. And I made a profit out of Grumpy that day, Bill. I walked back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'll tell you right now, in all the seriousness I can muster, if it had been up to this mind, I'd have never come back to you. I had tried AA. You hear me? My feet brought me here. we got a songwriter over in North Carolina, some of y'all may be familiar with, named James Taylor. There's a line in one of his songs that says, I guess my feet know where they want me to go. Mine did, thank God. And I know today that all of my intelligence and all of my knowledge about the program and all of my faith and all of everything else that I have doesn't mean anything in the spiritual way of life until it reaches the soles of my feet and I walk this program. The book says over and again, demonstrate, demonstrate, example, example. Not to impress anybody. Be this program. Live it. I know you've got to say it up here just like we have down where I am. It's easy to talk to talk. It's hard to walk to walk. It's a walking program. It is, if you will, a way of life. A design for living. It doesn't say it's a way of thinking, but it is, but it's more. It doesn't say it's a way of perceiving, but it is, but it's more. It is a way of life. And we're graced and blessed to have it. I forget that sometimes. I went to meetings late and I left early. I didn't think anybody wanted anything to do with me. I had described myself to a psychiatrist once when he asked me as the sorriest SOB on the face of this earth. It was an instant response. And that's what I believed about me. I not only believed that God had given up, you had given up on me and didn't like me, I believe God felt the same way. You see, I felt that I was so bad that even the higher power didn't want anything to do with me. I had gotten that arrogant. But it came. You know what Grumpy was later to tell me? The only thing you ever did right, boy, was you kept coming back. Last time I saw Grumpy, I'd been sober 18 years, and I walked into his hospital room, and he was dying with cancer. And he pointed his finger at me the minute I hit the door. Been sober 18 years, and he said, boy, you'll never make it. <laughs> what you going to do? I kept coming. You told me that you were glad to see me. I didn't believe that. I figured if you knew me, you wouldn't be glad to see me. 
You, you found out I was walking to meetings. I never walked again. I didn't have a license the first two years I was sober. I went to a meeting every night. You called me on the telephone. Want to go to a meeting? Want to go out? Want to do this? Want to do that? You told me that you loved me. You told me you liked me. You told me you accepted me. You told me I belonged. And I didn't believe any of it, but it was nice of you to say it. But it kept coming. <laughs> and I got that red chip. And you know it didn't mean nearly so much. But the night I picked up my three-month chip, you thought I'd been sober 35 years. They knew about me. And I got me a sponsor. I liked this guy in the group, and, and I liked the way he walked, and I liked the way he moved, and I liked his eyes. Man, he could lay some eyes on you, and he talked at you. You know, he looked at you when he was talking to you. He didn't, his eyes didn't wander. And I went over to him one night, and I said, I'm Tom, and I don't want to die, or some idiot remark like that. Will you be my sponsor? You know what he said to me? Boy, I have heard about you. They tell me you're not just an alcoholic. They tell me you're crazy. Now, I didn't see why they said that. I'd only been falling around in and out of AA for seven years, y'all. But I'll help you, he said, on one condition. I said, what's that? He said, we'll do it my way. And I don't know it, but one way in this between the covers of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, yes, sir, please. That may have been the only point in time when my ego was completely busted, y'all. That may be the only point in time, you know, that I was humble enough to accept direction from another human being. You know how wise sponsors seem to be when you choose them? And then after you choose them, they get stupid. I mean, he got stupid right away, man. It didn't take him 30 seconds. This wise man I had chosen, you know, to guide me in my life, uh, got stupid. He said, now, the first thing I want you to do is go to meetings early and shake everybody's hand and ask them how they're doing. <laughs> I said, I don't want to go to meetings early. I don't want to shake their hand. I don't care how they're doing. And why do I have to do that? And he said, boy, you don't ask me why. You do what I tell you to do. Any of y'all confused on what a sponsor is in these days of treatment centers? Sponsor's not a counselor. Huh? You've had a counselor in this fine treatment center, you know. I have a master's degree in counseling. I hope you're properly impressed by that. <laughs> and if I, as your counselor, told you to go to meetings early and shake everybody's hand and ask them how they're doing, my next question would be, how does that make you feel? My sponsor didn't give a damn how it made me feel. I mean, you know, he did, but it wasn't time for feelings. It was time for action, and he made this clear to me. He said, you go through the motion, the emotion will follow. You go through the motion, the emotion will follow. Effort, result, effort, result. God, I got sick of hearing that. And he's right. He came to know my deepest heart, but he never was a counselor. He was my guide. Yeah. You know, we can go to the finest fishing hole in this country with the finest equipment and fish for weeks and not get a bite. We can go to that same fishing hole and get this old dude that's been fishing that hole for 30 years and he'll take us to where the fish are. You want to find the fish? Get you a guide. 
He may get stupid on you. <laughs> My sponsor was never wrong. Let me say that. I know because I try him sometimes just to prove he's wrong. <laughs> and he is not that smart. Do you understand? But he is one hell of a channel. Boy, he channeled power to me that I never dreamed existed. He didn't even know he was doing it. I went to meetings early and I shook hands. I looked at the floor and mumbled is what I did. Mm. And my eye level started coming up. Saw some ankles. Saw some shins. Saw some knees. Saw some thighs. My voice level was rising, you know. And then I saw some of the nicest hips I'd ever seen. And then I saw the eyes. I was looking in their eyes, and I was glad to see them. And I knew they were glad to see me, too. And something inside me said to me, Bill, this is it. It's what I've always been looking for. I ain't never going to be without this stuff. You can't run me away from this program with a stick. You can hate me, gossip about me, talk about me, love me, kiss me, coddle me, do anything you want to do for me, but you ain't running me away from this program. This is home. This is family. This is the place that God himself designed for people like me to be. I belong here. Thank God I belong here. And I've discovered the ultimate high. It's called sobriety. It's called sobriety. You know, it's like a spiritual dance. You know, sometimes we dance real slow. And sometimes in sobriety it's almost like a dirge, you know. But then there are those times when we just boogie. We just boogie. God, that feels good. Because I had forgotten how to dance. One of my goals in life is to be like a little child. Some of my friends tell me I'm doing a pretty damn good job. <laughs> remember telling a young lady not long ago who was all distraught trying to figure out <laughs> why, why, why she had slipped again. And I heard myself say to her, honey, there's only one answer to the question, why? And she said, what's that? And I said, because. Just keep coming. And I stand up in front of large groups of people now, and I talk to them, and, and God gave me a gift of communication. I know that. I revere that. It doesn't scare me anymore. But the first time I was asked to read the preamble, I almost shook to pieces. And I cried so hard that my sponsor came up and said, That's all right, son. Sit down. There'll come your time. And I'm an intellectual who couldn't read one line in the book without forgetting it before he got to the next one. And my sponsor said, God bless his heart, get you a notebook and a pencil. And when you hear things at meetings that you really want to remember, write them down in there, Tom. And I remember having the fleeted, fleeting thought, but I'm an intellectual. You know, intellectuals don't do this. But my brain had been damaged by alcohol. And my memory was gone. And so I took a little black notebook to meetings with me, and I wrote things down. 
And he said, if you can't read but one line, read one line and chew on it for a while. Quit demanding so much of yourself. You have done that your entire life, Tom. Cut yourself some slack. Learn to be gentle with you. I never knew anything like that, you know. It was always full speed ahead or stop. It was always, if it feels good, it's excessive. I never knew that I could be gentle with me. Greatest gift in the program. I can be comfortable alone with me. That may not make sense to many of you here yet, but there will come a time. I can be comfortable alone with me. It's almost like I'm becoming my friend. I'm not the same, but I'm not the same because I'm smart. I'm not ugly anymore. I'm sure as hell not pretty either. I'm me. I haven't had the alcoholic obsession in years, by the grace of God. I haven't tried to tell myself that lie this time it'll be different and go get a drink. So I'm not insane anymore in that sense. I don't feel like a nothing and a nobody anymore. And it's because of a bunch of drunks. That boggles your mind, you know that? All of the gifted ones could not give me what I needed. And I come to the losers of life when I become one of the losers of life and begin to realize that losers make great winners. And you let me be here. I'd like to close this morning. I don't know how long I've talked. I've come a long way, so don't fuss about it. There's a friend down in my part of the country that writes music, and he writes some top 40 hits, whatever they are, for guys. And But he sings in churches for free. I like that. That's what he does. And a friend of mine had a tape of his one time and gave it to me and said, This reminds me of you. I hope you'll listen to it. And I'd like to share the words of this song with you as a dialogue between my two daughters, my son, my mother, and me, just to describe what has happened to me in this process of transformation, you know, which was brought about in me by my helplessness and the power of God, which came to me through you. I want to make that clear, through you. And it kind of goes this way, if I can remember it. My oldest daughter, Crystal, says, Daddy, why aren't you famous? I said, Christy, I think I am. Because all the people you see here today came out here to give me a hand. But their applause isn't what really matters. It's what I can feel from their hearts. And if today I made dreamers of some who had lost them, I made friends with a few who were scared. Or if there's one new believer who came here a critic and I told him that somebody cared. And Christy, I always feel famous, though I'm not seen on TV. I get all the attention my ego can handle doing this live and for free. Yeah, I do it live and for free. My daughter Frances says, but Daddy, why are you lonely? I said, Frances, I guess I am. Because there are a few people that I miss today who aren't here to give me a hand. But you know, in some ways they're closer than the people out on my front row. If I'm quiet, I can hear Grumpy's heart beating rhythm and see Harry driving his car. And there are preachers and poets that I never met, like Bill Wilson, who hasn't gone far. 
So I'm alone, but I'm not really lonely. I just got a group you can't see. They give me all the companionship my faith can handle doing this talking with me. Yeah, they do this talking with me. And my son Jason says, but Daddy, I think you're crazy. And I said, Jason, that's what keeps me sane. I was born with a strange sense of humor to go with a strong sense of pain. So I might smile at stories about people suffering and laugh about losing my hat and make people think I give talks without answers because I tease them and hide where they're at. But I also do things that are simple. And a smile is the last thing you'll see on the face of this crazy old outlaw, laughing out loud because I'm me. I laugh like this because I'm free. And then my mother, the Black Belt Southern Baptist, says, But Tommy, do you love Jesus? And I said, Mother, doesn't it show? She said, I've been listening to you for an hour, and frankly, i got to say no. <laughs> because if you did, you'd be famous. Big concerts and Christian TV. You'd be so well known that you'd never get lonely, you'd never be crazy or weird. But you've got to give up making talks without answers, and you ought to shave off that old beard. I said, well, I love you too, Mother. But you sure found it different than me. You see, I do my best, and I do it like Jesus, because he did it live and for free. Thank you.